And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it's Tuesday as we get to stay underway. Uh, our latest blog post up on the website this morning talking about is the big catastrophe coming, right? Uh, Jeremy Grantham recently talking about that, the end of the Super Bowl. Uh, that's on the website now uh, at realinvestmentadvice.com. A couple of things to cover up this morning, of course, is, you know, well, Jamie Dimon out saying that could be a recession. Um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of argument that we're heading towards a recession at this point, so it'll just be a function of, of time to get there. But Jamie now, and we'll talk about this in the next segment, a little bit more detail saying this is serious, folks. We're getting serious now about the potential for a recession. Um, you know, we talked about last week that, and I'm writing an article about this, that more Americans than ever are already suffering from what's called recession fatigue. And I think this is interesting, right? Because you hear uh, there's a, you know, a lot of economic fantasy, right, uh, in, in the economy right now. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the kind of mainstream economists saying, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Right? Households have record savings. Well, how is that the case that households have record savings if they're struggling to pay bills? Which there's, you know, uh, you know, kind of by all measures. Um, in fact, we're at the highest level that we've seen in a decade of where individuals are having trouble just paying bills. Credit card debt is surging. Well, if you have record excess savings, then why is credit card debt surging, right? If you've got excess savings, then, you know, why is credit card debt going up, right? Just, you know, none of these things make sense. And so the reality is, is that the economy is actually a lot weaker than it appears. Um, we talked about, you know, last week employment growth. We had the employment report last Friday, uh, 263,000 jobs caused the market to sell off because that suggested that, well, the Fed's going to hike rates, you know, even more aggressively now because it's still a strong jobs report. Um, got to be careful with that data. 263,000 jobs sounds like a very strong number, and it is. On a historical basis, it's a fairly strong number. However, that number is trending lower, and, and much like we've seen in the stock market, if you take a look at job growth, job growth is trending lower. And as we've talked about before on the show, what is way more important than the number is the trend of the data. And that data is trending negatively. In other words, job growth is getting weaker, but just like anything else, it's still positive at the moment, but it is heading towards being negative. And the problem for the Fed is that they're hiking rates based on this idea that, well, job growth is still strong, assuming that job growth will just stay this way, you know, permanently at this point. But what's happening is, is that the job growth, because of the economic shutdown, right? We shut down, had the pandemic-driven shutdown. We, had, we just laid off millions of people. And we've been hiring those individuals back. And right now we're just kind of getting back to where we were pre-pandemic levels. So we've put all these people back to work. Now that job growth is slowing. So we have these huge numbers of job growth that have been slowly kind of, you know, windling down. And they'll keep slowing down until they get to negative. And at that point, when we get to negative job growth, then the Fed will go, oops, wait, we've oh, tightened a little too much, right? And so this is the problem. But by the time that we get there, we'll already be in a fairly deep recession. And that's, that's the big concern. And again, you know, when you take a look at what people feel, right, how do they feel? Um, they, they feel like they're in a recession. 
right? Uh, job, wages aren't keeping up with inflationary pressures. They're not able to pay bills. Though that's not a great environment to be in for most individuals, and it's certainly not one that you know, pretends to stronger consumptive trends or, or outlook for better consumer confidence, you know, that all kind of starts to weigh on economic growth. If people don't feel confident, right, about their situation, then they make decisions not to buy certain things. They, you know, they start to, to you know, hoard a bit more. Um, and that slows down the economy. That's what's called the paradox of savings, right? We want, you know, we want people to save more money. Uh, you know, we talk about financial planning. Oh, you need to save more money, right? This is the paradox of saving, though. I want you to save more money. Great. But if you save money, that means you're not spending it in the economy, which makes the economy weaker. So we want people to spend money so we can get the economy to be stronger. That's the paradox, right? You can't do both. You can't save and spend. But, you know, the problem now is, is that consumers are starting to, to go to that kind of side of the equation where they're starting to hoard a little bit more, starting to reduce their consumptive behavior. We're going to see retail spending on Friday. And this will be interesting because we're just getting ready to head into earnings. Uh, sorry. Yeah, we're getting ready to head into earnings season, starting really kind of in earnest on Monday. We'll have some banks out uh, later this week. But we're heading into also the retail shopping season, right? Uh, October, Halloween tends to be one of the, uh, one of the larger spending days of the, of the year. Uh, people getting ready for Halloween, you know, all around my neighborhood right now are big giant black cats and 12-foot skeletons. That's apparently the new thing this year, these 12-foot skeletons, right? So everybody's buying these things. Um, not sure why we're having 12-foot skeletons, but we have 12-foot skeletons. Anyway, so people are out buying this stuff, putting their yards, you know, decorating houses, buying candy costumes, all this, right? So it's a very big spending day for the uh, uh, spending period for the year for Halloween. Then you have Thanksgiving, then Christmas, then New Year's, then Valentine's Day. So we're right in the midst of this, you know, kind of big spending frenzy. And this will be where we really start to see the strength really more than anything else of the, of the retail consumer. How much are they actually out there spending, you know, and especially compared to last year? when consumers still had a lot of kind of free government money to go spend, you know, at retail stores, et cetera, uh, you know, excess, you know, uh, unemployment savings, child tax credits, uh, direct checks to households, all those type of things. Will we see a fairly sharp market slowdown in spending? Odds are probably yes, right? But we'll get, we'll see when we get there and those numbers will be coming out soon. Now, the numbers we'll see on Friday for retail sales or what happened last month. Of course, that was back to school. So we can still, still see some fairly decent retail sales numbers on Friday. But as we start to move further into this year, once and particularly once we get into January and we can start to you know, talk about December and, and, and late November, we'll really see why, kind of what's going on with the retail consumer, more importantly, anything else. Um, so keep a watch. So a lot of these things are coming on. Again, earnings season coming up. Earnings have been dropping. Uh, we've had about a 7% decline in earnings estimates, something we've been talking about now for about, uh, seems like a year, <laughs> that earnings estimates were way too high and they'd have to come down. Uh, Wall Street now getting very busy ratcheting down those numbers for the uh, Q3 earnings re uh, reporting period. That starts really in earnest on Monday. By October the 28th, we will have 70% of the S&P 500 will have reported. So we're going to get a good flavor over the next couple of weeks 
about what earnings look like for these companies. But estimates have come down so we can play the annual beat the estimate game. Um, this is where you know uh, companies report earnings and a little bit better than earning, than uh, uh, analyst expectations, and so stocks get a little bit of a bump from that. Uh, could be very much the case this year uh, that we see that for, for Q3. Um, but the one thing to really pay attention to in these earnings estimates is going to be what their outlook is. What do they talk about? Uh, inflation, how, how uh, corporate profit margins are being impacted by higher prices, imports, exports, um, regulation, regulatory environments, et cetera. You know, so we'll, we'll really kind of, and energy costs more than anything else, we'll see how that's impacting earnings, margins, and outlooks. And that'll really be a, a really kind of a key setup for stocks. You know, are companies actually able to pass on still these higher costs? Or how are they positioning? What is their outlook? That's really going to be the big driver for stock prices over the course of the next couple of weeks as we go through earnings. Okay, uh, quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk about Jamie Dimon, his outlook for uh, recession. Uh, he says six to nine months. Like I said, most people think it's already here. So we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Let's go, girls. What do women want when it comes to finances? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for a special ladies' edition lunch and learn what women need from Social Security. Thursday, October 20th at noon. Get the most out of your Social Security benefits. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next ladies' lunch and learn. What women need from Social Security. Thursday. October 20th at noon with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, so, um, Jamie Dimon talking with uh, CNBC on Monday, warned that the U.S. could be in a recession in six to nine months. And again, as we talked about before, that individuals are already suffering from recession fatigue, right? And, and if you take a look at the survey that was recently done by Bankrate, a very large chunk of Americans, like north of 40%-ish, um, either are unprepared entirely in other words they have no savings or they have less than three months worth of savings saved up so just really unprepared for a recession uh, particularly with job loss now so far job losses have not been a problem and and you know but this will become a problem as we get further into this and as we've talked about before you know the issue is is that CEO confidence is now down to record lows or near record not at record lows, but very near record lows. In other words, CEOs are very unconfident about the outlook for the economy. And kind of, you know, businesses go, and we've talked about this before, and just a quick recap, you know, businesses are very slow to hire, you know, uh, because employees are very expensive. They're very slow to fire because once you hire them and train them, it was expensive to do that. 
And if you've got good employees, you don't want to let them go, right? You don't want your competitors to have them. So slow to hire, slow to fire. So what happens first is, and, and we see this clearly in the NFIB surveys, right? The National Federation of Independent Business, which is actually out due this morning. Uh, so we'll, uh, they're expected to drop uh, from to 91.6 from 91.8, which is a very recessionary level for the NFIB survey, by the way. Um, small businesses not optimistic about the economy. But what happens first is, is that small businesses or businesses in general, they, they, they start cutting back on expenses, right? So no, no big office parties, you know, no travel, you know, those type of things, right? So we cut back on expenses first. Second thing we do is we, we cut back on capital expenditures, right? So no big, no big items, right? No mergers, no acquisitions, no, no big, you know, you're not you know, buying new tractors or trailers or whatever your business is, right? So no big capital expenditures and, and outlook for capital expenditures drops pretty sharply, which is exactly what we're seeing. Now, once I've cut all these expenses and I can't cut anymore, then the layoffs come. And we talked about this previously, is that a survey by uh, KPMG, which is the big accounting firm, they surveyed all their clients, big Fortune 500 companies, and they said, what are you, what are you planning on doing? And it's like, well, we're going to have to start firing people. 50% of the people, well, actually more than 50%, 51%, of the CEOs that they surveyed said that they will be doing terminations here sooner than later starting with the work from homers. So if you're, if you're a work from homer, you might want to start showing your face in the office a little bit. <laughs> Not saying that's the case everywhere, but a large chunk of the people that were surveyed said starting from work from homers. So just show up the office, shake a few hands, go back home. But so this is the process that we go through, and we've already done the first two parts. Cost cutting has been done, CapEx has been cut, so layoffs are coming. And, you know, so far, like I said, employment's been very strong, but the trend is negative. The trend of growth in employment is negative. And, and again, when you start from a very high number, you can't go from a high number to negative. Right? You have to go from a high number to a middle number to a lower number. Then you go to zero. Then you go to negative. It takes, it takes a while to get there. Just like economic growth or any other stat, you know, when you're at a very high level, ISM manufacturing index, you know, it's always interesting. There's this, you know, when they talk about the ISM index as an example. If you're above 50, the economy is expanding. If you're below 50, the economy is contracting. That's the line. 50.1. Economy is growing. 49.9, the economy is now in contraction. That's not really the case. If I was at 60 and go to 59 to 58 to 57 to 56 to 55 to 54, 3, 2, 1, 49, right? At what point was the economy contracting? Was it contracting only when I went from 50 to 49? Or was the economy actually contracting from 60 to 59 to 58 to 57, so forth and so on, right? It's the trend of the data that matters. And if you take a look at the trend in employment data, that is clearly weakening. But this is why, as we've talked about before, this is why the Fed is going to make a, mis a policy mistake. They're going to hike rates too much. 
the the Fed's hiking rates are going, oh, look, we had 263,000 jobs in September. So we're going to hike rates more because apparently the labor market is still very strong. But the trend is clearly negative. You know, October, we may do 240,000 jobs, and then we may do 180 in, in November. I'm just picking numbers, right? And then you do 150 in December. Then you do, you know, 100 in January, and then you're negative after that. You know, whatever, however fast it declines. But you're declining. You're heading that way. You're, you are contracting in employment. Employment is slowing down. And, employee, and employers are telling you, that they are about to start firing people. So when they start firing people, that employment's going to slow down really sharply. And this is why, if you take a look at the unemployment rate, right, it kind of, it slowly kind of declines. You know, we just kind of slowly make this, this decline in the unemployment rate, and then all of a sudden something snaps in the economy and the employment rate goes straight up, right? There's these big spikes in unemployment. And that's because all of a sudden... CEOs go, time to go, right? We've done everything else we can do. And it always kind of happens in mass, right? And so layoffs just kind of happen across the country all at once. And so there's the, the unemployment rate. You know, there's the old saying about the stock market that the stock market takes the, the you know, the uh, elevator up, right? The, kind of that 45-degree decline going up and then takes escalator, sorry, the escalator going up. And then the elevator down, right? So it's just kind of a slow rise higher than a sharp decline. And that's the way markets work, the same way that works for economic data, particularly employment. So, you know, Jamie Dimon's talking about, you know, that we're going to have this recession in six to nine months. Now, it may be classified as a recession in six to nine months, but there's clear evidence that we're probably already going to be in one sooner than later. And again, if consumer psychology has anything to do with it, it's probably going to be on the sooner part. But again, you know, by the time that the data goes through the system and the National Bureau of Economic Research collects the data, then they revise the data, then they'll come back and say, oh, yeah, the recession started in the first quarter of, you know, 2023. But we won't know that probably until the end of 2023. But it'll be out there, right? And, and, and again, when you take a look at a lot of this data, the data is telling you that we're heading towards a recession. We're just not there yet. But we're clearly moving in that direction. Now, could, could that change? Sure. Right? All of a sudden, you know, the Fed stops hiking rates and, you know, we start getting, you know, people, back, you know, people, you know, start spending money and, and wages stay high and inflation magically comes down all on its own and, you know, everything's fine. It's just very hard to kind of put that picture together where you don't go into a recession at this point, simply because of what's been done so far to the economy. And we talked about this, you know, numerous times. We wrote in 2021, as an example, we wrote this article called Sugar Rush. And we said, look, you know, when all this money comes out of the system, you're going to have a very big economic decline. Because you injected the system with all this monetary liquidity, and now that it's gone, consumers are going to contract because it's not because they don't want to spend it, they just don't have any money to spend, right? You gave them the money, it created inflation, and now you get the double whammy. You get high prices and they've got no cash to spend. So, you know, we're heading towards a recession. Jamie Dimon's Jamie right. 
The question is really the timing issue. Is it sooner rather than later? You know, I don't have those answers. I wish I did. As he says, uh, Jamie Dimon was uh, talking to CNBC and says, you can't talk about the economy without talking about stuff in the future, and this is serious stuff. And among the indicators ringing alarm bells, Dimon cited the impact of inflation, interest rates going up more than expected, and the unknown effects of quantitative tightening. Well, don't think the, the, the effects of quantitative tightening are unknown. If repeated rounds of quantitative easing is what boosted asset prices and created economic wealth for the top 10% of income earners, that is, like Jamie Dimon, by the way, then the reversal of that policy should be heir apparent. At the same time, yes, you have inflation running high because of the monetary injections, but that's going to reverse itself. And again, that's just a function of time. So that occurs. And this is all a function of time, right? This is all just a, 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 a point in history where you have temporary impacts on the economy that created an artificial inflationary environment that's going to reverse itself. But you've got a Federal Reserve and other monetary authorities acting as if this is organically driven inflation, right? Uh, there's a big difference in inflation. And when we come back from the break, we'll talk a little bit about the 1970s inflation versus today's inflation and why they're very different and why the Fed is on course to make another very big policy mistake at some point. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com let's go girls what do women want when it comes to finances join richard rosso and danny ratliff for a special ladies edition lunch and learn what women need from social security thursday october 20th at noon get the most out of your social security benefits register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next ladies lunch and learn what women need from social Security, Thursday, October 20th at noon with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Just for the break, talking a little bit about Jamie Dimon's uh, forecast of a U.S. recession in six nine months. He's, he's going to be right. Um, the question is, is, is it sooner rather than later? That's that's kind of the bigger question. And as we were talking about, just to wrap up the segment, you know, there's a 
you know, policymakers right now are treating the inflation that we have as an organic outcome of too much economic activity. Now, we did have too much economic activity, right? Um, and because we sent $5 trillion worth of capital to households and they went out and spent it like they should. That creates economic activity. So, yes, we have too much economic activity. But it was driven by an artificial increase in monetary liquidity in households, right? Households got a bunch of money that they didn't earn and they went out and spent it. Well, the problem is, is that when I give, if, you know, if I give Brent, you know, it's kind of like a homeless guy, right? So Brent's a homeless guy. He's on the street corner, right? And so I, I go up to Brent and say, Brent, how you doing? He says, I'm doing great. I go, here's a hundred dollars. We should sell some food and a haircut and, you know, shine, whatever you need. Get yourself, you know, get yourself cleaned up. So Brand, you know, takes hundred dollars and he goes and spends it and gets himself all fixed up, right? And uh, great for a day. Tomorrow he's got no money. And if nobody, if I don't come back along and give him another hundred dollars, he can't maintain that day, right? And so it's over. And so he immediately goes back into his previous situation. This is one of the, the big fallacies that was brought around by the Biden administration, you know, shortly after the, the 2021 injection. A bunch of articles were produced saying, oh, the Biden, the, you know, the Biden checks, the, the Biden stimulus is going to lift households out of poverty. And we wrote an article that says, yes, it will lift households out of poverty for exactly one year. And one year later, they're back in poverty because they ran out of money. And now you've created this big inflationary pressure in the economy that they, you know, whatever money they did have coming in, now they can't sustain their standard of living because now just everything costs more. And this is far different than what we saw back in the 70s when we had inflation. See, back then, inflation was driven by economic activity that was organic in nature. We were building and producing stuff. And so, Savings rates were high. They were about 8%. Household debt was fairly low, about 60% to net worth, mostly mortgages. People lived on, you know, people didn't have credit cards, so to speak. They mostly just lived on, you know, checkbook or cash out of their bank. You know, people didn't have debit cards back then, that type of thing. So spending was fairly well contained. Savings were high. You know, people were manufacturing, producing, creating economic growth. So as economic growth grew, then Producers said, look, economic, the economy's doing fine. People are buying stuff. Let's raise our prices a bit. And so they raised prices a little bit. People were still buying stuff. And as, as people were buying stuff and companies made more money, they gave, more, they gave wage increases to the employees who allowed them to buy more stuff. And they bought more stuff and prices went up some more and wages went up as well. And so you had this organic trend of growth and inflation in the 60s and 70s. Far different story than what we have today. But our federal officials are all making the mistake of thinking this is the 1970s inflation, and they've got to kill it because if they don't kill the inflation, this is the Volcker mistake, then, you know, it'll become permanent. But what everybody forgets is that high prices cure high prices. You know, Volcker killed inflation. He did. He hiked rates until inflation finally broke. And I'm not so sure that was a good thing. Because ever since then, 
we've had negative growth and negative rates of inflation. What I mean by that is that that was the peak of inflation. Yes, in the late 70s, early 80s, we had inflation peaks. It was also the peak of economic growth, the peak of economic wage growth, etc. Everything has been trending lower ever since. And along with that, we've been injecting more and more monetary accommodation, been running bigger deficits. Households have gotten massively indebted. That debt-to-household ratio is now over 150%. You know, it has just gone in reverse. And again, you look back at where, where the economies were and where things were doing back in, in the late 60s and 70s. And you look at where we are today, economically speaking, and yes, we have a lot more comforts of life. We have a lot more, you know, technology. It's all great. But households are far worse off than they were back then, economically speaking. So, you know, while the Fed's trying to fight this inflation fight, which is fine, there's nothing wrong with that, except that you're going to cause a recession. And because the Federal, the Federal Reserve continues to operate on this trailing data of the economy, they continue to hike rates, they continue to do things to try to break this artificial pace of inflation, you're causing destruction to the demand side of the economy, which may be much more irreparable than you think because consumers are having to go further and further and further into debt just to make ends meet. And we just see this with the latest credit card debt uh, survey that just came out last, last week. Consumers are ramping up credit cards, taking on more debt. So even if we get out of this, say, say we just have a mild recession, right? We finally, we finally quell inflation. We have a mild recession. Somehow, magically, we don't just lay off, you know, millions of people. But coming out of this, you're going to have more indebted consumers. If you have slower employment, you're going to have falling wages. So now wage growth is going to come down. Yes, inflation will come down. But coming out of this on the other side, consumers will once again be worse off than they were before. They're not going to be better off. So then what are we going to do? We're going to have to go start this whole process over again, right? We're going to have to start you know, doing QE and, and trying to get asset markets up, try to create this wealth effect for the economy, so forth and so on. But that clearly hasn't worked, right? We've been doing this now for over a decade. Households are not better off. The wealth gap is bigger and bigger and bigger. The top 10% of income earners own 90% of the stock market, blah, blah, blah. We know that. So exactly what are we doing here, right? What is the goal of all this? You know, and we, and we take a look at kind of, you know, the political divide that's happening in the country. That's just getting worse. And look, you know, we talked about this before. The, the political divisions in this country is not about really as much about politics as it is about wealth disparities. When people aren't happy financially, they're not happy, period. You know, you go back in history all through history, right? You look at civil wars and uprisings and revolts and all these type of things. And it's just the point to where, you know, the, the lower class becomes finally fed up with the oppression and they revolt. 
And, you know, you're seeing that happen here, right? The, the further this wealth divide continues to grow, the more unease and unrest there is within society. And you would expect that, right? It's just, you know, when, when you can't make ends meet and you're having trouble taking care of your family, people aren't happy. You know, and, and you know, giving them, you know, giving them bread, right, as, as they did back in the Roman days, right, doesn't quell the audiences for very long, right? Bread and games only work for so long. So, you know, again, this is, this is the problem. You know, we've gone down this path of, of giving out freebies for the economy, right? We're going to forgive your student loan debt. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this other thing. And they're all very fine short-term band-aids, right? But they don't solve the long-term problem. You know, as we talked about with student loan debt, great. We're going to forgive people 10000 of student loan, but what about the next group of people and the next group of people after that? Are we going to forgive their loans too? Because you're going to keep ramping up debt so people can go to school, and now they're expecting you to forgive their debt. So these temporary fixes just lead to more economic problems down the road instead of coming up with a solution to create better economic growth. We keep coming up with these band-aids that lead to worse outcomes down the road. So, you know, this is so this is kind of the thing, right? So, you know, it's no matter kind of where you look as we talked about it's very hard to suggest that we're not going to have a recession because the Federal Reserve is going to make a mistake. They're going to hike rates too much. They're going to break something economically. And not just domestically, it's already impacting Europe and the rest of the world. I mean, there's a global recession coming. It's just a question of how big is it going to be and how are the central banks going to react to all this. But Europe is already starting to, to put pressure on the Federal Reserve to stop it because you're causing them more pain. The stronger the dollar gets, the worse their problems get. We come back from the break. Ben Bernanke awarded the Nobel Prize for his work. And we'll talk about why I don't know what happened to the Nobel Economics Committee, but or just Nobel Committee. But yeah, Ben Bernanke, Nobel Prize winner. We'll talk about why that's a farce when we come back from the break. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com let's go girls what do women want when it comes to finances join richard rosso and danny ratliff for a special ladies edition lunch and learn what women need from social security thursday october 20th at noon get the most out of your social security benefits register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next ladies lunch and learn what women need from social security thursday October 20th at noon with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. 
And welcome back to the show this morning. So over the weekend, it was announced that Ben Bernanke, along with Douglas Diamond and Philip Dybig, I apologize if I slaughtered that last name, um, were the awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics for their work on banks and financial crises, right? You know, you just almost have to just laugh at it. You know, you know, the Nobel Prize, you know, used to have a whole lot more, I think, prestige around it, you know, before they started doing things like, you know, giving a Nobel Prize to Barack Obama for getting elected, right? <laughs> you know, just, you know, just, you know, these types of endeavors. You know, they, they do award the Nobel Prize for some pretty amazing work, you know, work in mathematics and in medicine. And, and you know, uh, this year's Nobel Prize went to Steps Towards Curing Cancer, right? That's what the Nobel Prize should be for, right? But they, they gave the Nobel Prize to Ben Bernanke for his work on financial... You know, just let me read this real, real quick. Uh, people had seen banks fall, but it was more thought of a consequence of crisis rather than a cause of the crisis, this is economist John Hassler, who serves on the Nobel Committee. Now the views of Bernanke have become the conventional wisdom. And of course, he's referring to the work that Ben Bernanke was, had done on the Great Depression and then started applying those issues to the banks in 2008 during the financial crisis when we were bailing out banks. But, you know... Am I considered a hero as a fireman if I'm the arsonist? Right? If I start the fire and then put it out, am I the hero or the villain? Right? I mean, this is the point because Ben Bernanke caused the financial crisis to a large degree. Right? Remember, actually, I shouldn't say just Ben Bernanke. It was also Alan Greenspan. Because remember, the way we got into the financial crisis was all these adjustable rate mortgages, subprime loans, et cetera, which were endorsed by Alan Greenspan as the Federal Reserve and were, you know, and, and still promoted by Ben Bernanke saying, oh, don't worry about it. Subprime is contained. No worries there at all when everybody was ringing the alarm bells that there's a problem with subprime mortgages. Kept hiking rates, caused the problem. Then, then, him, the head of the Treasury, all sat down and decided it was in everybody's best interest to force Lehman into bankruptcy and just completely seize counterparty trading across the board. Again, causing the fire. And so now we give this guy a Nobel Prize because he did some research that says, oh, banks are very important. But, you know, as we talked about before, Ben Bernanke's work did not make the banking system more stable. It made it more unstable. Prior to the financial crisis, the, big, the top big five financial banks made up about 30% of the entire banking system, right? So a large majority of the banking system in the U.S., was diversified between small and, and mid-sized banks all around the country, a diversified system. After the financial crisis, they became about 60% of the entire banking system, and they've even gotten larger ever since, right? J, you know, J.P. Morgan, 
Wells Fargo, Bank America, etc. So you have a much more concentrated banking system now so that if something does blow up in one of these major banks, it really devastates. You know, they've, they've gone from just being, you know, bunker busters to being nuclear bombs in the economy. And we keep, you know, alluding to ourselves, oh, there's no problem with the banks. They are financially healthy, right? You don't know. Just like we didn't know back then that subprime mortgages were a ticking time bomb, we don't know what's on the books of banks now. And, of course, since we don't do mark-to-market accounting anymore, we have no idea what the value of those assets really are. But what we do know for a fact is that every time we get into trouble, we got to bail the banks out, just like we did in 2020. Oh, the banks are healthy. They've been passing their stress tests for years. It's all fine. As soon as we get into a financial you know, issue of shutting down the economy, we're bailing out banks, doing QE, opening up windows, um, you know, bailing out corporations, whatever it is, PPP programs, et cetera. Sure, they're very healthy. And I love this line here because it says... <laughs> The three U.S. economists were recognized for their work in early 1980s, which the Institute said provided the foundation for a modern understanding of why banks are needed. Um, yeah, we need banks. Their chief vulnerabilities and how their collapse can fuel financial meltdowns. Well, yeah. You know, again, arsonist or fireman. Because what we've done is, and we talked about this before, is that in 2008, if we would have allowed, and what we should have done in 2008 is followed the rule of law, which says that, hey, J.P. Morgan gets into financial trouble, Bank of America, Washington Mutual, et cetera, all these banks get into trouble. You go through bankruptcy. Clean up your books. Get your bad debt off of it. And if you can't make it, assets are transferred to other mid-sized regional banks around the country. And there's plenty of banks in this country. You know, we weren't bailing out small little regional banks around the country. They were fine because they didn't have all that bad mortgage debt sitting on their books. Their operations were fine. It was just these big major banks that took on unprecedented amounts of risk, making loans to people who couldn't afford loans. And we talked about 2008 when we were on this radio show during the, during the financial crisis, talking about these predatory actions by these major banks where they were foreclosing on people's houses that they didn't even have a mortgage on. Talked about all the reveal that came out of all these big banks that had one person signing all these mortgage documents, right? They were just printing these documents to get them out the door so that they could securitize them, create these loans, sell them off, and make money. So there's all these shenanigans that were going on during the financial melt-up in the housing market in 2006, 2007, leading to the fall in 2008. Those banks were unstable, unhealthy, and were, in, in a lot of cases were outright criminal enterprises. Should have been forced into bankruptcy. Yes, it would have been tough. We would have had a tough financial system for a couple of years. 
But we would have come out of this with a much more diversified banking system, a much healthier banking system, and a much more stable and strong economic environment. Yes, people lost their houses. And if you would have allowed the financial system to do what it's supposed to do, instead of you know, doing the HAMP and HARP programs that President Obama did to keep people in their homes, locking them into places where there were no jobs, if you would have allowed the bankruptcy mortgage process to go through, yes, they would have lost their homes that they couldn't afford to start with. But they would have been able then to move to an area where there were jobs, rent an apartment, and start over. But see, now we've locked ourselves into this belief, and now that we're awarding Nobel Prizes to, to idiots, um, you know, we've now put ourselves in a position that this boom-bust cycle is just going to continue inevitably because we're not solving the root cause of the problem, which is too much debt, too little income, and not ability to support it. So, again, we keep doing and repeating the same mistakes, and then we award people <laughs> awards. It's, you know, it's going to be like millennial soccer here. We just give participation awards now for you know, Nobel Prizes. You know, the issue, it becomes the fact that you're not allowing the economic process to mature to cleanse the system. You know, it's, it's like a patient being on life support. You know, after 2008, we had, we had the patient on life support. And, and ever since then, every time we had a little downturn in the economy, a little blip, we had to, you know, do more life support, right? It's like, you know, they're on life support. We take them off life support. They start to flatline. So we put them right back on life support again. This is what we've been doing since 2008. QE, low interest rates, right? Supporting the markets. Try to take it off. Try to, you know, try to stop QE for a moment. Try to raise interest rates a little bit. Economy flatlines right back on it again. Here we are again. 2022. Now you got inflation to deal with. Now everybody's trying to pull the economy off of life support in the middle of the patient having cardiac arrest, you know, all at the same time. And it's like, this just doesn't make any sense. But this is the problem with the policy run. We wouldn't have, and look, go back to 2020. Yes, we shut down the economy. Stupid idea. Sending checks to household, worse idea. You know, look, the pandemic was a bad thing. Not anything, you know, no doubt about that. But shutting down the economy exacerbated the problem. Now you're dealing with the consequences. But I'm sure we'll award Powell a Nobel Prize in economics for his work on fighting inflation. Wraps up the show for the day. Be back tomorrow. For the Wednesday edition, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog post is up this morning right now talking about the issue of what Jeremy Grantham just said about the Super Bubbles final act. That's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. If you're subscribed to our newsletter, you'll get our blog post today by email. So simply go by the website, subscribe to our newsletter. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our daily commentary. It comes out every morning promptly at 7.30, giving you a market look and update about what we're watching it's important in the markets. Have a great day. Be back here tomorrow. Three minutes of markets and money. Be up soon.